Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. This is a very special episode and the first of its kind. This is a best of 2020. It's I know it's hard to do a best of anything this year, but this is a best of 2020 episode. And I apologize, it's not the best of the entire year. I actually started uh, about, oh, I don't know, June. Because I partnered up with uh, color, Chris Kate's Colorado Playlist, and I'm very thankful for that this year. And he plays a seven to eight minute segment of this podcast on his radio show, which is then um, broadcast to 25 FM frequencies across Colorado. So that's been really, really cool to have that opportunity for Middle Class Rockstar this year. Um, and basically what I did is I took those clips and cut them up into just the interview portion, so about six minutes, and I put them here. And some of some of these clips I found a spot I liked and let it play for six minutes. Uh, some of it is I skipped around and edited it so that we could hear my three favorite questions and answers from an interview. But anyway, it's not the whole year. It is just the episodes that Chris K aired on his playlist or I edited to air on his playlist. A couple of those did not actually air or haven't aired yet. And so the artists included in, in today's episode is Jeremy Lawton of Big Head Todd and the Monsters, uh, Dango Rose of Elephant Revival, Sarah Slayton, Patrick Seitz of Whitewater Ramble, Alex Rhodes, Julia Mendiolea of Ilabamba and Inner Oceans, Megan Burt, Shanna in a Dress, Andy Frasco of Andy Frasco and the UN, and that's it. <laughs> So I'm just going to play about a six-minute clip, like I said, of each of them. I'm not really going to talk at all. I'm just going to let the clips play. I will very quickly introduce the artist before they start talking so you know who is speaking. And other than that, I'm going to let it play. So th this is chopped up clips of of some of the best stuff, and I, I hope you enjoy it. And if you're listening and you think, you know who would be a good fit on this podcast, you can email that to me at middleclassrockstar.com at gmail.com. There's something about this time of year, and I think it has to do with beginnings and endings. There's a lot of, you know, people write down goals at the beginning of each year for things that they're going to do better. Um, I know I do. I'm, I'm going to share, share mine that I wrote down last year. Uh, really quick, but it's it's a time of beginning beginnings and endings. Things that people did well, they look back and reflect on. People uh, things that people want to improve on. They it's a chance to start over. It's a chance to start fresh. And in terms of everything that's been going on, is one day going to start us over? Is the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 going to mean um, the end of the pandemic and? And everybody, the Roaring Twenties <laughs> happening again. I don't, I don't know the answer uh, to that. I mean, certainly not January 1st ending the pandemic. But uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. But I hope that if you have goals that you weren't able to go after this year because of the situation or if you lost somebody or if you lost a job, I really, really hope that uh, January 1st marks a new beginning and that you're able to write down some goals or whatever it is that you do and 
and do whatever it is you want to do. Go out and conquer the world in your own way. I really hope that um, for all the listeners and, and also people that aren't listening. Um, I, I, I look back at, at my 2020 goals. I actually ju- just coincidentally found them in my desk the other day. And here they are. Be less than 180 pounds. Magically, I did that even though I've been producing and making music and teaching lessons 10 feet from uh, the pantry for the last nine months. Be tour support for bigger artists. I don't know that anybody was tour support this year. I did open two shows for Chuck Prophet back in February, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Denver. I don't... I don't know if that counts as tour support, but I think that's as close as any small-time indie artist could have hoped to have gotten (laughs) in the year 2020. So I'm not crossing it off the list, but I'll say I I did all the steps I could for that. Produce for another artist. Yes, I'm very happy to say that I did a lot of that this year, sort of an adjustment I made with not being able to perform as much. and there's, I don't know, 15 to 20 tracks coming out from other artists that I produced next year. Uh, my dear friend Ian Mahan has a track coming out. J.C. Allen, we did eight tracks. And uh, Lauren Freehoff and Ben Suyat very recently. Um, and Lauren was one of the last eight or ten people standing on this season of The Voice. And it's been such a pleasure to work with her on uh, her de- their, hers and Ben's debut EP which will be out sometime in the spring. Um, Number five. No, number four. Compose music for something. I did that. Um, I had my first... had my first placement. I had a track bot for the first time, which was really, really cool. And I also did a commission Christmas piece. Uh, It was a co-write, big band arrangement uh, with a, a big orchestra intro, and that was a whole lot of fun to work on. It won't come out till next Christmas, but it was a, it was a ton of fun to do. Um, figure out middle-class rock star phone interviews. I wrote this back before anybody knew what Zoom was, but I'm going to go ahead and say that. I'm going to go ahead and cross that one off the list. Uh, release videos with your songs. Yes, I did that. Not every single song, but a lot of the music that came out had an accompanying video with it, so I'm crossing that one off. Be more time efficient. Be better about a steady wake-up time. Definitely cannot cry. That one's, that one's got to move to 2021. And lastly, consistently release good music. I did consistently release new music this year, more than any other year. Whether or not it's good um, depends, depends on who's listening, I guess. So there it is. There was my 2020 goals. I hope you had some, and maybe you're reflecting on what you want to do in 2021. I know I am. Um, to start this episode off, I'm going to, before we jump into all these six-minute clips, I'm going to read um, an excerpt from Anthony Farrell, who is of the band The Greyhounds and also was uh, played in J.J. Gray and Mofro for a while. Um, he was the very first episode of this podcast um, along with Andrew Troub, his bandmate, I, I was opening for the Greyhounds, and we did a podcast episode. And Anthony's been a great friend uh, through the years. And when the when the George Floyd um, when the George Floyd killing happened, we took a week off of the podcast, 
um, to, I guess, observe Blackout Tuesday, but since we don't put out episodes on Tuesdays, we just pushed back a week. And that episode was with Isabeau Vayau Walker, who is a Portland artist from Hawaii. She's wonderful. Check her out. And so on that first episode, after, um, after the killing, I recorded some thoughts from Anthony Farrell, who had a lot of, I, I thought, really great things to say about the issue of race, inequality. Um, and so anyway, he, this was something that he wrote, and I read it. So these are his words, and I'm going to start off the podcast with that. And then we'll jump into all these clips. Um, I really hope you enjoy. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. When I think of what it means to be an American, some of the first things that come to mind are freedom and equality. Ideals that this country is built upon. A beautiful aspiration of the human spirit, America. A place where no matter what one's creed, color, or sexuality, one can pursue their dreams without fear. People come here from all over the world in search of these freedoms. The freedom to simply live as you choose in the pursuit of happiness. Freedoms which many of us take for granted. The Bill of Rights, which grants all Americans these freedoms, was in large part written by people who owned slaves. To be black in America is to inhabit this juxtaposition. Our ancestors were brought here against their will stripped of their culture, language, and history, and forced into bondage. We are a nation whose founding fathers are hailed as visionaries and heroes, yet in observance of the facts. One can't help but acknowledge their hypocrisy. We grow up and watch our leaders stand at podiums and tell the world that they are fighting for these freedoms. Yet to this day, people like us are still treated worse than dogs. We see people come here from every corner of the earth in search of the promise of freedom, but we feel like that promise has been broken. Time and time again, we see people of color suffer more at the hands of law enforcement than their white counterparts at every strata of our justice system. From harsher sentences in the courts to the physical harm by police officers who are meant to protect and serve all of us. When I look at these scenes from around our country, I'm saddened and angered. It is true there are some out there who are taking advantage of the situation to sow more chaos and destruction. But there are others who feel that they have no other recourse. Our pleas for change have fallen on deaf ears, but now the entire world is paying attention. You must ask yourself, what depths of hopelessness and anger must people feel in order to set fire to their own community? How would you feel if one of your family members was murdered by police? How does it feel to know that your life and the lives of others like you are not valued as others in our society? When we demand justice, what is it we are really asking for? Of course, we want the individuals who perpetrate senseless acts of violence against our fellow Americans to be held accountable. But I believe it's more than that. I believe what we want is a fundamental change in how our systems work. I believe the system which dispenses our justice is inherently flawed. We have many prisons across the country that are privately owned, where some are profiting from depriving our fellow Americans of their freedom, which in itself I find reprehensible. In their contracts with our governments, private prisons have bed quotas. 
This means that if the prison beds are not occupied to a certain percentage, in most cases 80 to 90 percent, then the local government has to pay a low crime tax. This incentivizes those governments with privately owned prisons to lock more people up. This means more cops on the streets aggressively trying to arrest our fellow citizens, usually in less economically affluent neighborhoods. Research has shown that people of color are disproportionately sentenced and incarcerated compared to whites. Some of the staggering profits that these privately owned prisons generate are then used to hire lobbyists who advocate for stiffer penalties and laws that will in turn send more people to their prisons. When you start equating people's freedom with dollars and cents, it begins to sound a lot like slavery to me. Government spending on prisons and jails has increased at triple the rate of spending on pre-K to 12th grade education over the past 30 years. The United States has about 5% of the world's population, but we have about 25% of the entire world's prisoners. We are the self-proclaimed defenders of democracy and freedom, yet we spend more of our taxpayers' money on locking people up than on educating the citizens who are supposed to be the future defenders of democracy and freedom. This is but one of the many contradictions in our society that leads me to question if the current justice system is operating in the best interest of the people. When we demand equality, it simply means that we want to be treated with decency, as human beings with the same rights as any other American. To be viewed not as a threat, but as a fellow citizen. To be allowed to live our lives and pursue our own happiness. To be part of the dream of a better future for all of us as Americans. As a man of mixed race, I have had to struggle with finding my own identity within our society. As a child, I had a tough time navigating racial complexities. We are taught from a young age that if you are a certain color, then a corresponding set of expectations are put upon you. These stereotypes are one of the issues that make it harder to see that beneath our skin, we all desire the same things. Eventually, I gave up trying to put a label on myself and internalized the fact that I'm not a white man or a black man. I'm just a man, regardless of color. Everyone else is my fellow man. When another man's freedoms are violated, then so are mine, because these freedoms belong to all of us. The Founding Fathers, with all their faults, are long gone. All we have left of them are the ideas that they put forth as a guide to how our country should conduct itself and treat its citizens. These same ideas have made this country a beacon of hope for people all over the world who don't enjoy the same rights as we do. We must understand that those freedoms are only as permanent as we, the people, make them. We must defend these rights, be respected and protected by the institutions that serve us. It is up to us to show our elected officials and lawmakers that if they do not work to make our society more just and fair, then we will replace them with people who will. We do not want leaders that divide us and pit us against each other. We need leaders that unite us in striving for these rights for all. Because in the end, it's not about black or white. It's not even about being American. It's about our shared humanity. Thanks again, Anthony, for your powerful words. Again, that's Anthony Farrell of the Greyhounds. This has been a year certainly of growing pains <laughs> for the world and for the country, especially, I think, um, for, for Americans. There's been a lot of growing pains, and those aren't over yet. And I, I, I just appreciate Anthony's words there and wanted to start off the podcast by resharing it um, from way back on the episode with Isabel Villahu Walker, which came out June 11th. Let's jump into the first guest, shall we? And it's the most recent episode of Middle Class Rockstar. This is Jeremy Lawton, 
who's been a member of Big Head Todd and the Monsters since the early 2000s. He's also subbed gigs for the Freddie Jones Band. He plays in the Railbenders. He's played with everybody, and he does the keyboard work and the lap steel work for Big Head Todd and has also done some production and engineering in his home studio uh, for the band as well. So this was a great conversation. I love chatting with Jeremy, and here's a little excerpt that I liked very much from the episode. How how are you? Have have you been uh, have you been stuck in the house for the, all year? I mean, what have how have you been navigating everything? Yeah, I'm good. I'm a little bored and a little grumpy, just like everyone. Um, we had uh, the good fortune of finishing a trip. Uh, we did like a forty show trip that ended on March 10th or March 11th. So we were well positioned to take a short break, which we were going to do anyway. And the break's been a little longer yeah. than we expected. Sure. And, uh, and uh, it's not fun, but what's the alternative, you know? So we'll see what happens. And is there, have you guys even started trying to map out what 2021 is going to look like yet? Or are you just sitting back? Well, at first we started trying to map out what the summer was going to look like. And then we tried to map out what the fall was going to look like. And then we tried to map out what January and February would look like. And then now we're trying to think about, well, maybe, maybe March or April, like maybe not, you know, and like our Red Rocks show that we canceled for June, it got rescheduled for the exact same weekend next June. We're like, well, man, what about that? Like, it's really hard. And as you know, booking a show, anywhere is a three-month process if you're doing it properly um especially if you're traveling and uh so it's hard to shoot for 90 days from now when people are shooting for like 14 days from now or 20 days from now what's going to change if you're playing in a different state if you're playing in a different country you know like you know that so yeah uh it's really daunting and uh, everybody's having a hard time. And if you book a show at a place that might not exist a month from now or two months from now, so, but everybody's in it together. So I think there's a big boat full of people that are trying to figure it all out at the same time. And there's a lot of smart people that will figure it out. So yeah. we'll see what happens. You're where I guess we're in our chronological interview that turned out this way. We're now in the early two thousands. Um, and where you've started playing with the uh, rail benders and with Big Ed Todd, which are still both uh, current gigs for you. Yeah. Um, how did those How did those two uh, first come about? And and are, is it the right place, right time thing again? Uh yes, yes, it is. But uh, I was playing with this guy named Matthew Moon, and the Big Ed Todd band. They had their big, their big album in like ninety three, ninety four. And they played a couple hundred shows a year for four or five years straight. And then they burned out and uh, they took all of 1998 off. So the drummer, uh, Brian, he subbed a couple shows for Matthew Moon and came and played and had fun. And, and uh, I met him that way. And uh, then in 2004, uh, I guess they were doing a trip where they wanted to have 
more noise and they had a new record coming out that had a lot of keyboards on it and uh he was the only guy who had like a keyboard player's number in his phone you know wow <laughs> so he called me and and uh i don't know I, i'm probably exaggerating but he called me and uh asked if i would like to you know come practice some tunes and i was like yes yes i would thank you and uh I went and practiced and uh and they liked the noises I was making so um uh, they hired me to do that trip and then a, like a week after that he called me and he's like well we're playing new year's at the Fillmore so you can just come do that if you want to and I was like yeah that's great he's like well it's three hours and and we'll just send you some cds or whatever yeah and you can we don't have time to practice and so I, in the mail, I got like nine CDs, you know, like a hundred songs or something. Did you get a set list? No. Oh, no. man. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I was lucky because, you know, Big Head Todd is like the Denver band of the 90s for me, for people my age. And uh, really? I, I knew a lot of it kind of like subconsciously, like it was just kind of baked in a little bit. And so I... I wrote my charts real fast and I knew about a third of the songs anyway, just from having heard them on the radio so much. And, and, uh, it went fine and I was terrified, but it was fine. And I don't think those guys even listened to what I was doing during the show. They just kind of just letting me have my fun over there. And there was a, and the, the Colorado sound recording truck was right behind the Fillmore and they were doing a, a simulcast to KBCO and I went in, I knew all the guys in the truck. So I went into the truck and I'm like, Hey, what's going on? They're like, Oh, nothing. I'm like, did they tell you to keep all my stuff really quiet? And they're like, well, yeah. I was like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> and at, at what point did you go from feeling like, Oh, they're letting me come along to play or I'm, I'm jumping on this tour to what point did you start to feel like, okay, I'm a, I'm a member of this band. I'm the, I'm in it. I, my opinion matters. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think I, I like to make a joke that like, uh, I felt like I was in the band once when I saw a picture, a promo picture and I wasn't on the end on the edges. And I was, there was like a guy in between me and the edge of the photo. So it couldn't get cropped, <laughs> you know? And that's like, that's my, that's, that's how I thought that maybe I was in the band, but. Thanks, Jeremy Lawton of Big Head Todd and the Monsters, and lots of other things as well. Up next, we have the episode that came out, I think, just prior to that episode. This is a short snippet of my conversation with Dango Rose, formerly of Elephant Revival, and now uh, does his own solo project and does artist empowerment and artist production at his studio in Boulder. The big event right now is that you just came out with... The second side of your A-side, B-side release is called Life's Too Short. What was sort of your, your process behind the production? Yeah, and this one, this is an interesting one because when I was on the road, uh, my production partner and songwriting partner uh, would usually send me like bed tracks, you know, sometimes like acoustic guitar tracks or this, in this case, tenor banjo. And then while I had time, uh, you know, between uh, sound check and show, I'd, I'd go backstage and you know, sometimes take a listen and to what he sends me. And then if something hit right away, um, sort of like a top line gets written 
and I just send it back to him immediately. And so we created this cool process flow over the years. And uh, my production partner is Evan Reeves. And both of these tracks are examples of that kind of production where he sends me something. And then if it just hits, it hits. I send him something back in 15 minutes and it's just like, okay, we have the working structure for a song. Um, so that's both of these songs. So they, they really represent that co-writing and co-production relationship I have uh, with my buddy, Evan. Where, where were these ones recorded? These were recorded at my studio, uh, our studio in Boulder. Um, uh, Elephant Collective is kind of our studio collective where we have different people working and coming in and out and a whole bunch of studio musicians and like a wrecking crew and different producers and mixers and engineers. Uh, Yeah, so that's in downtown Boulder and we've had it up and running for about 15 years and different iterations. And right now, that studio is taking on a whole new life. And it's uh, feeling great. What was the influence like being on being on the road with, you know, an Abigail Washburn and a Bela Fleck? What did you What did you learn from them? That, uh, well, Bela is, is one of the most humble, just beautiful humans. And I was always like, it always felt like there was something unatta- unattainable you know, at a certain level of artistry or mastery. And that like these people must be like, almost like untouchable or something like that. And that was just a falsehood falsehood in my mind, um, you know, as a teenager or something. Um, But then just realizing that the greatest musicians and performers out there are usually so much of the time, the most humble, kind, caring, you know, people uh and and that their mentality is really wanting everyone you know to have the opportunity to to succeed and to be the best that they can be and uh i felt that uh from bela and uh at the time abigail was you know just just one one of my friends you know and uh it's just really sweet um i was young i was in my early 20s um, I was definitely a little bit starstruck, but I, I worked with it. What was your goal at this point as you're traveling the country and meeting all kinds of great artists and touring in different bands? I mean, were you planning world domination or selling out Red Rocks uh, or stadiums? I mean, what was your what was your reason for being at that point? What was your what was your big goal? Well, when I got to Colorado, I went to uh, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, as so many do. And um, I remember sitting on the hillside over town, overlooking Sunday night, sunset. And I never even had a ticket to get into the festival. So I was pretty much in town the whole time and listening to what I could. And I found a spot on the hillside that had a reverberating echo. And uh, Sam Bush broke into Girl from the North Country, Mm. the Bob Dylan song. And that was the moment where I said to myself, uh, I'm going to play, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm going to play on that stage one day, you know? And so that was another pinnacle moment uh, where I just made the decision, you know, that that was, that that was going to happen. Um, it was never about world domination. I mean, <laughs> it sounds so funny saying it, but, uh, but it was always about also like, the band, you know, putting the band together 
and finding the right people and creating something bigger than ourselves and being able to share that with people so that they, they too could tap into that essence. Yeah, Red Rocks uh, wasn't specifically as much of a dream until it became the dream of sort of like the management agency. Right. Uh, or like the management of the band. It was like, well, this is the pinnacle of like Colorado, you know, tell you ride Red Rocks, uh, you know, playing Betcher Hall with the symphony. Yeah. And I was like, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Big three, the big three. Well, and you, and you did those, right. You, you accomplished the big three and, and how was that group put together that you accomplished that with elephant revival? So we started um, running into each other in 2003. Like it's all part of this formulation stage. Uh, Bonnie and Daniel met uh, in 2003. Bridget and I met at a festival in 2003. She was doing a fiddle competition. I was performing. We met dancing in a rainstorm, one of those Colorado rainstorms where the sun's out and then there's the rainbow and everything. Yeah, yeah, Bonnie and Dan met on a rooftop in New London, Connecticut. Uh, We met Sage at Winfield and we just started cross and uh, Bridget and I met Bonnie at Winfield as well. And we literally heard each other before we found each other. We were like, she had heard Bridget and I playing and then Bridget and I had heard this washboard, you know, from across the campground. And uh, we found each other and we just, you know, spent the whole weekend together. And then we would just meet up for the next like two years, like everywhere, Um, like California, New Mexico, Oregon, Oklahoma, um, Colorado, out, out on the East Coast, Connecticut, New York. And we would just crisscross and meet up with each other whenever we could, Kansas. And, uh, and then we, formed, we really came together in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, um, which is the uh, Cherokee Nation. And uh, it's where, the, where Bonnie's family was from. And I, I lived there for almost two years. And uh, toward the end of that time, uh, we started coming together more and more and more. That's Dango Rhodes, and as you've probably heard, he has a couple fresh singles out and is releasing a bunch of stuff uh, to start off 2021. Up next, we have Julia Mendiolea. She was my best friend in college. We're still friends, of course, but we were absolutely attached at the hip all through college and music school. Um, And she now plays in several different groups. She plays in Inner Oceans. And she also plays in the eclectic indie folk pop band out of Portland, Oregon, Ila Bamba. Isabeau Vayau Walker, by the way, also in that group. And she also works with synthesizers here in Denver for a company called WMD. Here's Julia Mendiolea. As somebody who's been through school, what's your general philosophy at this point? I mean, you see a lot of musicians out there now that do have four-year degrees or even further uh, you all see a lot of people that don't, but I think there's very rivaling opinions on musicians going to college or anybody going to college these days. What are your What are your thoughts? Oh, I have so many thoughts. I'm like, <laughs> how do I organize my thoughts in real time? Um, first, I want to just say, like, I'm so grateful I went to school, and I recognize it is an immense privilege that I had to uh, have that kind of possibility be a part of my life like yes I was able to go where I went due to like an academic scholarship um, but I know a lot of people even with scholarships couldn't have afforded um, that kind of privilege so number one 
I'm grateful for what I had and I recognize the privilege that goes along with it more and more all the time. Um, as far as like how it relates, how like, you know, academia relates back to uh, what, what may or may not be a necessity is like a working musician. Definitely, I don't think it's necessary, but I, I know that um, I utilize the things that I learned at school all the time, whether it's with the gigs that I'm playing or with the way that I teach my students or um, especially what I do at um, the synthesizer well, and also like pedals company WMD that I work for. So um, the recording program really helped me understand just the way that like sound works, you know, from like basic signal flow um, to like how to look at an oscilloscope and like understand like what's going on. So definitely like I use all of those things, um, but man, it's like, there's so many different ways to answer that question because there's my personal experience and there's like the broad scope, broad scope, I would say like, <laughs> I feel like it just really depends on like how much a student knows what they want to learn. Um, I'm teaching some students right now that um, actually like we went to school with that are our age who like really are looking for like a review on, on music theory um, because they're like, you know, I think at the time in like my late teens, early twenties, I just like wasn't really dialed in to have the, the space in my, my brain and my time management to like dig into those things. Cause I, I knew what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to like be productive, like as a person in a band and, and it's just, it's just funny to see the way that we create metrics for people where it's like, I know people that were getting really good grades, but like weren't getting any gigs. And I know people that were playing gigs all the time and like could barely even make it to class. So uh, it's just so different from person to person. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what I want to give to my students. And a really big thing has been this very deep understanding. And, you know, I know you and I were discussing a little bit earlier um, how moving lessons into an online format has just kind of offered like a whole new uh a whole new landscape for like how to think about teaching somebody right. and for me a lot of that has just been realizing like i want to make sure that i am cultivating every single lesson to really be in tune with what that student wants to get out of it and um you know like, yes, we had like applied lessons and like, yes, we did have opportunities in school to, to personalize the content. But I think that when I was in school, um, I was so, I had not evolved into the person that I am now where like I have like a really strong sense of self and like a very strong sense of like the space that I wanna take in the world and what I wanna do with that. And, you know, I think at the time, like I, my strengths were like music theory. Um, I hadn't ever taken lessons on guitar. Uh, so that was like new. And um, I was such a like brainy person that for me, it was like, I was so scared of getting bad grades. I was also on scholarship, so I couldn't really afford to like not do well in some classes so that I could focus that energy into the classes that I actually like really cared about, like the music classes. Right. Um, and 
I look back on that time and I think about like learning how to improvise and like how scared it made me. And there was just so much at play. It was so much more than the content. It was personal level. Like if we're just talking my experience. Um, just feeling like I knew I was really different from my other students purely from a demographic standpoint. I just wanted to be another student. You know, I remember walking into a jury and I won't name names, but everyone there knows who it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I walked into a jury after working my ass off that semester. And the first comment I got was that it was so interesting to have a student that was wearing a skirt. And I totally botched my jury and I knew it. Like I didn't need uh -huh. to be coddled. I didn't need to be like, oh, like that was pretty good. I'm there, I'm like literally paying money to learn things and get like real feedback. Like yeah. that is why I'm there. And um, I felt like the feedback I was getting just kind of wasn't honest. And I was in my head, like trying to figure out like, am I being like, am I looking too far into the situation? Or like, you know, just in real time, like trying to assess what was happening. And I remember saying something like, hey, like, I know I have this weird role here is like the only whatever, but like, I need your real feedback. Like, I need to grow. Like, I'm here to grow. That's Julia Mendiolea. I love that entire episode. Go check it out if you have a chance. Um, I love the rapport between two people that know each other on a personal level more than just interviewing for the podcast. I think it makes for a great dynamic. And she had so many wonderful things to say and talk about with her career. Next up is Andy Frasco of Andy Frasco in the UN. He's been making all kinds of splashes in the jam scene. He's in, and he grew. He grew exponentially, I think, in 2020 from his shit show you might have seen on social media. Um, and he, he's doing all kinds of things and is really starting to fill up big theaters around the country. Here's Andy Frasco. Oh, and I should mention also, although this is a completely free speech podcast, I believe most of Andy's curses got cut out of this clip because this clip was originally made for radio. I love the music industry, man. I, I was, I mean, I grew up listening to like pop punk music and like something corporate, Newfound Glory. Of course. And I worked for Drive Through Records and I thought I was just going to be like a record exec and be a band promoter and, or a booking agent just on the other side. And, uh, and it was 2006 and I didn't, and I didn't realize that, uh, the, you know, Shazam and whatever, not Shazam. What is it? Like Napster. And what was the other one? LimeWire. Uh, LimeWire. And I'm like, I'm just gonna take the, the skills I learned in high school and, and, um, start playing music and just market myself, you know, and just kind of do the blue, you know, blue collar, uh, you know, blue collar musician style and just get on the road. And I booked myself for like seven years straight doing 250 shows a year. Um, just like in my van and basically Craigslisting musicians to back me up like Chuck Berry. And, um, from there on, I, you know, started building a fan base and now I'm, I've been doing it now for about 14 years. So it's coming together. That's rad. And it's interesting to me that you come from the opposite angle. I feel like most people in the music industry wanted to be a rock star and it didn't work out. So they got in the industry. You wanted to be in the industry 
and then you kind of you did the opposite thing yeah i, I i'm jewish i like money and stuff so it's like <laughs> I, didn't, I was like oh i love music but I did, you know, at first it was like, I just, how am I going to make money doing this? You know, it's like, cause I, you know, you hear all these horror stories of all these musicians not reading their contracts or not, you know, just getting Yeah, and I didn't want that. So I wanted to learn everything I can about the music industry before. Cause I, the whole end goal was to be a musician. When I was a kid, I was just, you know, doing battle of the bands, like lip singing in front of a mirror, just like working on my moves, you know? <laughs> right. I've always wanted to be a lead singer for like a band like Real Big Fish or like New Found Glory with like super energy, the crowds, you know, going left and right, swaying. And, you know, I didn't really get to, wasn't able to uh, do that for musically. And I, I just morphed into uh, what is my sound now is just, you know, energetic, uh, you know, soul music, I guess. Now, does the audience that started coming to your shows influence the type of music that you're making now? hundred percent. I mean, um, the jam scene got involved with me, what, seven years ago. I got on all the festivals and kind of ran with it. And um, so we we're, I was just focused on like live performance because that scene is all about live performance. You know, records don't really mean that much as the, the the last concert they went to you know right. like that means more to them so i to um yeah so that like kind of kind of steered me because i never would listen to jam music i was listening to like folk and like death cab for cutie and like postal service and like damien rice and i never even knew that fish existed really and so I kind of like started going this way, listening to Almond Brothers, Van Morrison, the band, and then like Muddy Waters, BB King, like, and it kind of just I kind of veered left, and uh, you know I I'm thankful I did that because I've you know being in a pop punk band is hard, yeah, because you, know? you only get like your a lot of those tours. There's five bands on a tour. You have like 30 minutes to prove your point, you know. My scene now is like I, I can play for two or three hours and I'm like Fuck yeah, give me some more. So it's like it's a nice scene to be in. It's nice, yeah. It's you know it's a lot of pressure because you have to have a new set every time you come into town, right? And right. if you're gigging four times a year, that's like you're playing that town three or four times. They expect something new every set. Well, so let's talk about how the touring started because you're somebody who's a total road dog um and I, I watched a little bit of those two documentaries that were posted god one of them was 10 years ago it's funny to see you with the guys then and some of them you're still playing with um yeah yeah which is really cool but you're going out and touring 250 dates a year i presume at first to nobody correct yeah oh yeah like um you know i kind or like people maybe it was a packed room like my game plan in the beginning was i'm gonna hit every bar in these state schools and colleges and college towns that were doing like $2, like you call it, you know, like, you know, just to have a packed room, then it's my job to figure out how to entertain a bunch of bros just trying to get laid, you know, it's like, so I was working on just like my entertaining skills, but like, yeah, like, but like there's, there was duds for sure. I mean, for maybe, the first five years, if I was doing 250 shows a year, 
the first five years, at least 175 of them a year were nobody there. Yeah. And like, so basically you're living off of, you know, the game plan was to, all right, let the venue feed us. If we make a 200 bucks, we'll have gas money to get to the next town. We'll find someone's couch to sleep on because, you know, it's like when you just let go for to the universe, you know, you will, the universe is going to take care of you. You just have to like, kind of just like go with the flow and not either be pissed off that it's not going your way or be pissed off that um that's andy frasco next up is megan burt she's a singer songwriter um, from right here in denver she's done lots of interesting travels over the years prison tours and she's won i think every songwriting award you can possibly win Here's Megan Burt. Yeah. Um, and it, there's there's two things you mentioned that I want to dig into deeper. One is touring in Europe. Um, how did that come about the first time, and what's that experience been like for you? Uh, well, I always wanted to do it, and I uh, – sorry. I lost you. <laughs> Am I still there? Yep, there we go. Sorry, I got, I got a phone. Um, I always wanted to do it, and I was putting out a record in 2015, and so part of my, you know, release plan was I added a month in Europe for that record, and uh, I I love it. I I it's I've done. You know, Ireland, UK, and a lot of mainland. And there's a learning curve, definitely, with uh, throwing Europe and sort of the best way to go about it. I, I feel like I'm just getting to the point where I kind of know how to attack it and have it be the most successful. Um, but... They're really wonderful. Playing in Germany is really wonderful because they, but playing in Germany is like playing in Texas. People really appreciate music in both of those places uh, in a way that just is so nice. It's just so nice to feel appreciated when you go play a game. And uh, yeah. It's tough. To, I know it's tough to find that in, in a lot of places. You know, I've we've all been background music more than a few times um, in gigs, so I'm sure it's very nice to be somewhere where you're feeling appreciated. And it would have to be something; it would have to make sense to go overseas like that because the overhead is is more expensive than going to Texas. Um, so, is is it something for you where you feel like you've started building up a fan base there, and plus you're just getting the great cultural experience of a new part of the world yeah definitely it's a it's a been a wonderful excuse to travel and and have it fall under my job you know a lot of most people have to save their their days off up and save their money up and or wait till retirement or something like that and i feel really fortunate that i've been able to find a way to 
work and and travel at the same time and believe me like it's not i mean it's grueling yeah it's definitely grueling to play one day in france and then the next day in belgium or the next day in germany and the next day in switzerland it's like it's very possible but it's 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 hard it's not like i'm like vacationing every day you know it's just uh, great like you said it's a great cultural experience and hopefully hopefully i'm building a fan base over there i'd like to be able to tour over there forever as long as i'm doing it yeah little by little you know it, it um <laughs> little by little have you gotten, do you start to get repeat customers when you go to the same places and familiar faces and stuff like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously there's different types of gigs anywhere in the world, but for somebody who hasn't uh, gone overseas, either as an audience member or a performer, maybe, maybe they appreciate music a little more, I think you mentioned, or at least the live show aspect. What might be different that an American wouldn't expect walking into a show in say Germany as a as an artist or as an audience member uh, both uh, the hospitality I find is better in in Europe uh, especially mainland Europe just as far as like you know food and lodging and stuff where when you're touring that way in the US, that stuff is never covered unless you're playing a house concert. Uh, and that stuff is way more often just sort of part of the gig there. Uh, so it makes it more possible. Yeah. Um, in Germany, yeah, my experience is that audiences are very quiet. They're very, it's like playing a listening room which is awesome. And they, uh, the encore situation over there is crazy. Like they, it, like, first of all, an encore is expected and it's usually like a double or triple encore. And I, that is just really uncomfortable for me. Like, I'm just like, stop. You can stop <laughs> Like, please stop. Like, I'm so glad you appreciated the gig, but like, I'm uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's uh it's custom it's customary i don't even know if they want a, th a third encore if they're like we're tired of this girl but like we're supposed to keep clapping i don't know it's very funny so are these three separate encores where you get encored you finish the song they do it again you finish the song they do it again yeah dude wow so strange so strange but beautiful you know really beautiful even it's a experience as an artist to feel that appreciated. That's Megan Burt. Next up is Shanna in a dress, who has also, I think, won every songwriting award that you can possibly win. And she's been a big inspiration for me this year. She started putting out a song every week, high quality audio, collaborations, uh, songs just by herself, whatever. She's putting out a video every week on her YouTube channel. She's grown her YouTube channel a bunch and has inspired me to put out a weekly video next year. And she also has grown her Patreon. She took this opportunity to grow her Patreon. She's done great things with it. Um, 
and is just just an all-around great musician and songwriter. Here's Shanna in a dress. Is this going? Is this going on YouTube, and I have to not pick my nose? This is going on YouTube, and you can't pick your nose. You can pick your nose, but it'll be on YouTube. Okay. I'll go, I'll go first, so it's, you know, so you don't feel self-conscious about doing it later. Thank you. What's happening? Hi. I'm happy to be chatting with you. It's always I'm, a pleasure. Yeah, I'm happy to be chatting with you as well, and, um. We had such a great conversation the other week that I kept thinking afterwards that I wish we recorded it. You know, yeah. even us trying to write a song unsuccessfully for like 45 minutes would have been great content. It, you know, we could always try that again if we run out of things to say. <laughs> Let's write a song on air now. Let's write a song on air. That would be a cool concept, write a song on air. Live. Oh my gosh, that makes me nervous just thinking about. Yeah, me too. Um, so going back, I, I kind of like to go chronologically to, you know, sort of, um, and then bounce around, but how did, how did things start for you? You're a musician now. I taught myself guitar my freshman year of college, and that's when I started writing songs and I like taught myself out of a method book so pretty much anytime there was a new chord progression that it taught me I would turn it into a song so I still sometimes teach um, guitar out of that same book and when we get to the page that's like A-E-D-A -A, I'm like I wrote a song about Chipotle to, this, to these chords and um, almost all of these in introductory songs that I wrote were four chords over and over and over um, as a result of, I don't know, practicing my guitar method book, maybe. Yeah. And what was the book? Uh, it has such a plain name that I couldn't even tell you. It's like guitar. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. That's very but it's hard to find. It's not like a common one. Um, but I, I just started writing so many songs and then I had this idea in my head of um, keeping them private until I was good enough to put on like a full show. And I, I think this happened my junior year of college maybe. Which was where? University of Virginia. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's where I grew up in, in Virginia. And I was in band, and my band director told me I could use the hall for my concert. The hall meaning the hall where the symphony gives its um, performances and where the band had its rehearsals. And this is a big deal. Like, they have a, you know, baby grand piano, and it's beautiful and resonant, and it's just the most beautiful space you could imagine for someone's first show. It's maybe the most beautiful space I've ever had a show. Wow. Um, and I had a surprise concert. So I messaged everyone I knew and said, March 1st, eight o'clock. I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but you gotta come 
if I mean anything to you. It's a surprise. It's a surprise event and you have to come. I said, bring a pencil and bring a, a pencil. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of to throw him off because I knew once I said, come to Old Cabell Hall, they would think it was like a musical performance, but if they are bringing a pencil, they could be a little confused about it. Yeah. Um, so everyone comes in. I have my French horn sitting on a chair in the middle of the stage for as um, people file in. I think it was a crowd of somewhere between 60 to 80 people. And wow. Yeah. And then, you know, I said, don't worry, this isn't a French horn recital <laughs> and uh, moved my French horn off stage. I passed out programs for everyone and told them to give me feedback on the back with their pencil that they brought. Oh my gosh. Um, and I played maybe a 12 song set and it was everything that I think I am now. Like I was, even though I was kind of embarrassed of my singing abilities and playing abilities, I felt like I could put on a good show. And that is, that turned out to be the case because everyone, including myself, had so much fun. And I left that show being like, I think maybe my life has changed forever and this is what I need to do with it. That's Shanna in a dress. Next up, we have Sarah Slayton, who just put out her new single, Get Up. And she was a member of Edison until the band's breakup in 2018. For as much as Sarah gets done for her own music career, she does even more for other artists and for the music community, whether it be the documentary that she's working on to raise awareness for venues after the COVID-19 pandemic or the stuff she she did right when it started to get other artists to perform online. She started running a little weekly festival, does all kinds of things for the community, the music community. Here's Sarah Slayton. You've got a couple of things on the horizon. One of them is your new single is coming out uh, December 11th. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, thanks. Yeah, um, the song's called Get Up and uh, the title's you know, kind of the song is about, it's about getting back up after uh, a kick in the pants, like 2020, you know, I was at this crossroads where, um, you know, I, I felt like the life I was living even right before COVID hit wasn't the one that the life that I wanted to be living. And I um, had kind of put my music on the shelf for a little bit and, and was ready to take it off the shelf, like, right when this all hit. So it's really about that kind of self-doubt, like, is this how I want to be living my life or my life doesn't feel right right now which can also just be from it being put on pause and then you know my I wrote it like I have this inner voice that tells me like I'm stronger than this and I can get back up and it's a song that I just wrote because I needed it at the time but then it's evolved into um I guess a bit of like my own my version of an anthem for this year which is hopeful but also like this sucks but it's going to get better <laughs> yeah sure sure and that's what we're all we need an anthem like that when you were talking about even before the pandemic feeling like you weren't living your life in the way that you wanted to, is there something in particular that you would attribute that to? Yeah. I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, my band Edison had finished like our final tour. And that was after a lot of years of just going nonstop 
and I felt like I needed just a break and a breather. And at the time I was so, you ever get that to that point where you're so exhausted that you just question everything and Absolutely. you just kind of want to grab a nine to five so you don't have to struggle so much. And um, so I did that and um, what I thought I was getting into for work uh, was it, a lot of aspects of what I was doing were wonderful, but um, it overall big picture wasn't what I, I thought I was getting myself into and not where I saw myself going. So I found myself um, moving to a, a new city and in a job and in a lease and kind of feeling stuck, you know, between a rock and a hard place and having for the first time in my life, those feelings of like, are my best days behind me? Not, maybe not in like a nuclear family sense, but like in a career creative sense, like are my best creative days behind me? And that was like really tough to face. I, I imagine, yeah, that's just an, an incredible answer as I'm reflecting on that. Um, feeling like your best creative days are behind you. I know with Edison, you guys really, some really great stuff happened. Um, and you guys signed with a label and and then things things didn't work out with it for whatever reason. And and it led, it led to the end of the band. And I, I'm sure that's a very... Um, you know, the, fe- the feeling best days behind you, but I haven't, I haven't done my best stuff yet or, or whatever, <laughs> you know, that's exactly how it feels. Yeah. Um, what, what was the nine to five you were doing? So as the general manager of a bar venue um, in Fort Collins. And so I came up to Fort Collins for that. Um, yeah. Not to go into too much detail, but I thought, you know, there'd be uh, more, more music focused uh, things happening in, in the future. And it, and it ended up just being uh, a little different than what I thought I was, I was going to be doing. And so I found myself just at a crossroad of when you realize you're not in the right spot, but you don't know how to get out of it. Yeah, sure. Well, let's, let's chat about Edison as we're leading into that. Um, because I know there was lots of great things with, with that group and you guys traveled around from, you hit the road hard for several years and I'm trying to remember your van, I, I remember Trailer Swift, your Van Morrison. Yes. Swift. You rolled around the country in Van Morrison and Trailer Swift. Yeah, That's we did. Hilarious. Um, and a lot, a lot happened. There was a record deal at one point. There's songs on Spotify with hundreds of thousands of streams. How did that group first form? And was that what, 2014, 2015? Yeah, we formed in 2014. So I moved to Colorado in 2008. And a big chunk of my time from 2008 to 2013 was spent um, working for other artists and managing some other bands at this place called the Vinefield. I actually managed like Rob Drabkin and uh, I booked Aldrin and worked with like Takes to the Oars, a bunch of bands. And so I was really focused on that. But I'd always had these songs and been playing shows like sometimes, but not pursuing my music career and then I met Dustin Morris who is this incredible musician that plays like any instrument you put in front of him and we really clicked and so he started coming over to my house and playing like mandolin on some of my songs and then he started playing on stage with me sometimes and at one point it was like we should make a band like I want to play music with you forever um, is how I felt. And so we decided to call it Edison. And the first record was a lot of songs that I already had before the the band was called that. And then uh, Dustin and I wrote a few tunes together and put out an EP, just the two of us. And then we met Maxwell Hughes, who used to be the guitarist in the Lumineers. And I met him 
because I was working at a music nonprofit um, doing artist development at the time. And he was one of the bands on like my roster. So he'd come to see me for like office hours and we vibed and we uh, went on tour and the band really formed on a tour to South by Southwest when Max was opening for Dustin and I. And then before we knew it, we were touring as Edison with the three of us and uh, we put out you know, a couple singles and then we were playing at Folk Alliance International and our uh, head of our label saw us at a showcase at 3 a.m. inside a hotel room with no PA and no mics. And I was just so tired. I was awake. I guess we put on a good show and it ended up getting our label deal and just went really fast for a couple of years. That was Sarah Slayton. Next up, we got two more to go. Next up is Patrick Seitz, who's been part of the band Whitewater Ramble. He actually formed the band Whitewater Ramble um, in the in the early 2000s, and they're still out doing the thing. He's been a road dog for many, many years, getting out and touring, opening up in support of bands like Railroad Earth and Green Sky Bluegrass, just getting out and doing the thing, making himself known in the jam scene. They put out Pseudonymous in the beginning of 2020, I think Valentine's Day, before all this really got started. Here's Patrick Seitz. What was your childhood like and how'd you first get into music? Uh, well, I, I was born in Idaho um, and I was I grew up in a musical house. My my father was a, at the, I don't know how many times over now, but seven or eight time national fiddling champion. No kidding. Yeah, so he, he actually learned to play uh, fiddle uh, kind of as a, as an old, an adult, I'd say probably when he was eighteen or nineteen, and he learned to play fiddle from the same man that Mark O'Connor, the kind of legendary Nashville classical composer, learned to play from. Um, so he was learning the same time, and in fact, he and Mark, my dad's a few years older than Mark. Uh, as the older person, I wouldn't say the more responsible person, but he drove Mark as like a twelve and thirteen, fourteen year old kid around to a lot of the fiddle contests. Wow. Uh, so when, when my dad was like 19 or 20, uh, which is kind of crazy to think, because I don't think he was that responsible back then, like most 20 year olds. But um, but that was kind of the, the house that I grew up was Americana, fiddle, uh, bluegrass, old time fiddle. Uh, but I completely like was anti all of that. I didn't enjoy that style of music. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was listening to hip hop and, and rap and, and uh, you know, NWA. And I thought that that was just way cooler and, and you know, something I was into. So, so I was around it and, and exposed to, you know, great Americana acoustic music my whole life. And uh, it wasn't actually until later in life and uh, at the Mishawaka Amphitheater, I saw the David Grisman Quintet and was yeah. like, wow, that's really cool. I had a lot of friends that were picking around campfires and playing banjos and guitars and mandolins and fiddles and having just my ear in that. I was like, wait, I know all this stuff. How do I know all this stuff? Because I was just exposed to it. It was like the the soundtrack of my, of my childhood. So, um, well, and, and so to, to jump back a little bit to your dad, cause that's very interesting. First off, what, what's his name? Joe Seitz. Joe. Okay. It, it amazes me that he picked it up at 18, 19. It's one of those instruments. That's a language. I feel like you have to pick it up when you're four or five years old, but he picked it up at 18, 19 and then had the discipline, not just to play it, but get uh, world-class good at it. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Well, he's one of the traits I think that I, I take a little bit away from him is that uh, he's kind of maniacal about things and hobbies or, you know, any, any sort of things he, he got into. Um, yep. 
dives in, you know, feet first and kind of, you know, when I fast forward and think about my own, you know, musical career and being around it my whole life, you know, I, I picked up the mandolin at 26. So I was definitely an adult, no music training, no anything other than my ears, the things that I had heard around me and been around my whole life. And so same thing, I, I, I would just assume the way that my dad dove into it just face first. And at the time, I, I mean, I, I would play my mandolin like 20 hours in a day and go to sleep and then wake back up and like do it again for another 20 hours. And I, I imagine that's the same sort of thing that he was doing back then. You know, my dad shared a photo with me of I was probably maybe five or six years old and in my living room was Bela Fleck, Jerry Douglas and Mark O'Connor sitting in my family living room, like having a jam session with my dad. <laughs> and I, oh, my God. And I, I could care, you know, I could care less. And you didn't know what a dobro was. <laughs> I was a mandolin. Oh, gosh, that's that's crazy. And and you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier about what you're doing now and kind of trying to develop the online presence and doing videos and putting out original music. And you guys have been doing that. Um, in fact, you you put something out on, fe- was it February 14th of this year? Yeah, that was our, our new album, Pseudonymous. Yeah. And it, it was a, it's a funny release date to me because <laughs> you may, some people felt like the world was going to end and some people didn't at that point, but it wasn't clear. I was, I was still out on the road at that point and, you know, like the next week that was it. And yeah. so how did you guys deal with that around your album release? Did you have any idea when you put that out that, um, you know that 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 was going to happen or that you guys wouldn't be able to tour at all and i mean we had no idea and you you know as well as anything that when you're 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 putting something out and and the interesting thing about that record it was almost two years old in the can we recorded that 2018 2019 it was done and in the can and there was singles that had been that had been out the year before and the year before that right some singles as videos and part of a trilogy series and things and so we're doing some really neat things video wise but we hadn't released the whole album yet so you know how much prep goes into that and in the, in the promo and i've got a publicist hired and and we've had our agent working full-time and we've got loaded up march and april dates and summer's just looking banging and we got all these things and, and we hadn't put out a record in in seven years and so we were really able to lean on that and call old festivals and call you know, places like, Hey, we got something new that we're really pushing. And, and, you know, and, and also we had those videos that were, that had won some significant awards for us. It was really like propelling our kind of online persona. So when you have this great striking visual material, you can lean to, then people are like, wow, we want to book you. And so our summer was looking amazing. And, uh, and then <laughs> just like that, right. That was Patrick Seitz. Thanks, Patrick. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, we have Alex Rhodes. I put these snippets in order of how quickly I could find them on my messy hard drive. So no particular order. But this is Alex Rhodes, who's an Americana artist, and he just put out uh, the EP Hometown Rootage and has made some pretty cool homemade music videos to go with it. And he talks about the process of making his record and what he's doing to promote it and being a parent alongside having a music career as well. Here's Alex Rhodes. I did, and you know, I mean, I spent, I want to say like 25 bucks to get 2,500 
three second views and I think it was I think 300 of those were 75% plus so that to me big success you know I can back it I can back into the math I'm not going to but it's less than a dollar to get somebody to watch a full video and that's good in my book yeah yeah people people talk about cost per click a lot in and for me, I that I maybe I'm not smart enough for the statistic, but I always want to know how much does it cost for for someone to watch it 75% of the way through, and how do you get that cost down? Yeah. yeah, how do you get that down exactly? And I think you know from what I know from past jobs and from listening to podcasts, it's just going back to those same people. You know you you found the 300 people who have watched this video most of the way through, guess what? I got another video and you know, do 200 of them watch that most of the way through. Okay. Well now I got 200 people that must give some sort of shit about what it is I do. Yeah. Which is huge. That's 200 people. If 200 people showed up at your next show in Denver, you'd be pretty stoked. I would be beyond stoked. Yeah. Yeah, that's and did you do that advertising directly through YouTube or did you do that on Facebook ads platform? Straight through Facebook ads platform. And you directed people to the video on Facebook or did you direct it to YouTube? I did it through the video on Facebook because yeah. Facebook okay. does, they don't play nice with YouTube. I mean, they're right direct competition, especially now. Um, so yeah, it was straight through Facebook. I have stuff on my YouTube. I... I've just focused on Facebook to this point because I, building up subscribers on YouTube is something completely foreign to me. That'll be next release, hopefully. Yeah, later later down the line. So, what's it like? Um, I you you've t- we've touched on this a couple times already, but I want to talk about um, being a dad in all of this um you mentioned they take up every bit of energy you allow them to and i thought it was funny you phrased it like that um, <laughs> because you're you're saying that you do have the power to take a little bit of that back um <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> does that make me sound like a bad person it's not meant no, to. No. <laughs> it makes you sound realistic <laughs> no i think you know it's like it's like with any job or anything else it's just boundary setting it's you know, they're going to get up at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. I'm going to struggle to get up at the same time, get breakfast made, get them to school. And then, you know, I have until 4 o'clock. And then from 4 o'clock until 8 o'clock when they're in bed, it's full on, all hands on deck. We're eating dinner. We're doing all that stuff. So then from 8 o'clock until you know, I have time to spend with my wife and I have time to play music and then maybe catch some TV. I don't really, I, a few years ago, I just stopped watching TV because I got really into music and I really haven't gone back. We watch a lot of sports, but I don't, I don't keep up with the like latest, coolest TV shows. Yeah. You got to sacrifice somewhere. Yeah. And you, and you sacrificed Ozark to be a musician. So I did. I've, I have not seen that show. I did the one time this guy in front of me on a plane was watching an episode and I could read the subtitles and I was like, damn, that's a really good show. Yeah. We, we watched it when COVID started and uh, good, good Lord. It just took two full days and then I forgot about television again. 
Um, and, and so that that time uh, spent parent, parenting, do you feel like you're still getting the amount of time you need to to do what you want to do? And do you feel like maybe you're maximizing on efficiency better than a 19 year old version of yourself would have? Oh, absolutely. I, I look at my twenties and I'm like, what, what was I doing? And then I remember a lot of times at bars, <laughs> a lot full days at bars. So, um, so, you know, you, you deal with the time that you, we all have the same amount of time. So what can I do in between eight to midnight really, um, every night. And, um, you know, now my schedule's completely different than it was when I was working a full-time job. Um, so I have time during the day now, um, and trying to maximize that. Mm. Mm. How will that impact uh, your touring decisions? You know, if it, I know you haven't been able to go out on the road because none of us have yeah. um, the last few months, but, and we'll see, you know, if, if spring 2021, we start seeing tours again from, from major artists, or maybe this is a time where it's just small ball, just the small artists are able to go out because it's just little clubs that are open. But how does having a family impact um, your touring? Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's part of having a very understanding spouse who, um, she's also fairly introverted, so she doesn't mind if I'm gone for a while. Um, so it is, that's a conversation that we've had. And this was supposed to be like my big year of like, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to get these, these tours and I'm going to be gone for a week and I'm going to go to the middle of nowhere in Nebraska and play a show. And I'll be, you know, living that life that I want to, that I want to live for a week or two and then I'll be back home. And she's very understanding with that. And then turns out she has to hang out with me at home all the time. Um, So with the kids, you know, we have a good support community here of some good friends and and who can help out if I'm not around for a couple of weeks, but um, you know, that's, that's where the, the rubber really starts to meet the road of like, okay, how much, money are you able to make from touring to be gone for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks? And then what does that look like over the course of the year? Um, and that's when the conversations will really get interesting with my wife. <laughs> Alex Rhodes. There you have it. Thanks everybody who's been listening to the podcast. Thanks everybody who's been on the podcast. It's been so cool getting to chat with people. I absolutely love doing this. I get a kick out of it. Um, I, I just I just love it. So thanks to everyone who makes it possible for me to do the podcast. And I'm looking forward to more next year and the year after that. We crossed the 50-episode mark just a few weeks back, and I'm, I'm very pleased about that. This started in August of 2018, I believe. So it's taken a little while, but we've gotten to that 50-episode mark, and and now I'm headed towards 100. I want to say a big, big, big thanks to... Patrick Badgley, who masters this podcast and puts it up online. His company is PQ Mastering, and you can go to pqmastering.com to get all the details on that for any of your audio or restoration needs. But big end-of-the-year thanks to Patrick for everything he does for the podcast. Also, thanks to my bandmates, even though we didn't play a lot together this year, and my manager, Ellie, who 
we did play a lot this year. We got a lot of stuff done. We were just talking about it at our end of the year meeting. We did a lot this year considering the circumstances, and we're both very proud of that. So thanks, Ellie, for all your hard work. Um, and Faba as well for for everything she does with videos and and pictures and stuff. So it's been, you know, that's a year-end thanks. Thanks to everybody. And also our other sponsor, I usually do the sponsors right up front, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing on Music for Sync, go to narratorrf.com. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor in the new year, you can shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. If you are wanting to support the podcast in a totally free way, ratings and reviews help a whole lot. They really do, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a quick second, and I really do appreciate it. Um, if you're in a position to help out in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon, patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. And that's that's for my artist career and my podcast career. I just, under that one Patreon roof, for less than the cup, for less than one cup of coffee, that's what I'll say, for, the, for less than the price of one cup of coffee per month, you can support me on Patreon and help me keep this podcast going. All right, I think that's it. Have a very happy new year, and I look forward to presenting many more conversations with many more fascinating people in the new year. Bye.